You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. My guest today is Bill Browder, who was the founder of Hermitage Capital, one of the biggest investors in Russia after the fall of, of communism. Now, one of the biggest critics in the world of Russian President Vladimir Putin. Uh, Mr. Browder has a new book, Freezing Order, uh, the true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. Bill Browder, uh, thank you so much for joining us on, on Washington Post Live. Great to be here. Thank you. Before we talk about your book, I, I want to first ask our viewers uh, to join in our conversation. If you have questions for Bill Browder, please tweet them to us uh, at Post Live and we'll try to select uh, questions that come in over the next half hour and, and put them to our, our guest. Uh, second, I want to uh, ask you to focus, uh, before we talk about your book, on the war in, in Ukraine. I'd, I'd be interested in your sense of the, the battlefield right now as Russia launches its second round. They failed in their efforts to capture Kiev. Uh, how do you assess uh, this next phase of the war? that began this week? Well, Putin doesn't, um, uh, doesn't do humiliation well, and he's been humiliated. The um, first eight weeks of the war, everybody thought that, um, well, everyone thought in the first two days of the war that uh, Russia would, would roll into Ukraine, they would take over Kiev, uh, that Zelensky would flee, and, and they could then raise the Russian flag and, and with great pride and, and uh, patriotism. And it's turned out to be a total disaster. The, the, um, uh, they've lost, uh, by, by some estimates, more than 20,000 troops, which is twice as many troops as the Soviet Union lost in Afghanistan. They've lost um, more than 1,000 tanks, many planes, et cetera, et cetera. The, their flagship, the Moskva, was sunk, um, which is one of the greatest naval losses in the last quarter century. So this has been a big humiliation for Vladimir Putin. And um, in that lead, lead up with the introduction, I, I was saying on a different TV show that the purpose of this whole war is for Vladimir Putin to get everybody to rally around the flag to, to back him so he could boost his own popularity. And uh, the Russians don't know right now that, um, that, that they're losing this war. Um, but if they were to know, uh, Putin would be really uh, on, on, uh, in dire straits uh, for him to have, have done something so. Uh, costly for Russia, both in terms of lives and in terms of money, and then having such a humiliation is not a, it would be a very, very dangerous thing for Vladimir Putin. And so I think what one can expect in this next, next phase is a, um, a, a very serious escalation. Now, how, how that's defined and what they do um, is yet to be seen. But I think what we can say very, very clearly is that, that Vladimir Putin can't um, uh, can't let matters lie where they are and be seen to be a failure and a loser. And, and that's what he looks like based on any objective analysis right now. Let me ask you about the response from the U.S. and, and NATO. President Biden was on television yesterday announcing a new $800 million package of military assistance, the second of that size in a week. Uh, there are all sorts of, of weapons in that in in that in that package. Uh, but I want to ask you, as you look at 
the order of battle, if you will. Do you think the U.S. is doing enough? And if you're doubtful about that, what more do you think we should do? Well, it's interesting because I think the U.S. is doing a pretty good job, um, uh, definitely not enough, and I, I'll, I'll get into that in a second, but I think the, the U.S. is doing a, pre a pretty good job, but it's, it's, it's always a little bit too little too late. I mean, we, we should have started this whole, um, uh, you know, huge uh, military armament a lot, uh, much longer ago. We, we should have started sanctions, sanctioning oligarchs, uh, a few oligarchs, before the war even began to give Putin a taste of of what was to come, and and it just seems that there is this this overriding feeling that we don't want to provoke Putin, we don't want to get him mad, and so every time uh, he does something to to make us shocked, we do something in reaction, but we're not doing things proactively. And so, yes, we have helped Ukraine a lot, um, and I and I I'm and I'm very happy with the fact that, that the U.S. And, and the U.K. and various other countries are supplying military um, equipment in, in, in large amounts to the Ukrainians, because that's what they need. But if you remember, like a month ago, the Poles wanted to transfer 20 planes. And then the U.S. said, no, we don't want to do that. And as far as I'm aware, um, either those planes or some version of those planes have been transferred. And so why did we stop that a month ago? And and uh, similarly, every time uh, uh, you know they're, they're talking about a, a no, they, they've been the Ukrainians have been talking about a no-fly zone um, since the beginning of this thing, and and um, and in fact, right now in Mariupol, there's just you know constant uh, aerial bombardment uh, of of that part of the country. You know, I, I think we're going to get to a point when when we're going to supply uh, a no-fly zone, we and and our allies, and and. Um, you know, and and when we get to that point, we can look back and say, why why did we resist for so long? Why why did we have to lose fifty thousand, a hundred thousand Ukrainian civilians before we got to that point? And so, on a military basis, I think there's there's more that can be done. We're doing a lot, but there's more that can be done. And then coming to the sanctions, um, again, I, I would say that that we're doing a pretty good job in in a certain way. I mean, compared to what has ever been done before against Russia or against any country for that matter, I would say that the current sanctions that are being imposed are the most far-reaching, the most dramatic that have ever been imposed. But we're not we're not there yet. Uh, in in my opinion, um, uh, the purpose of sanctions at this point is not that we should expect the oligarchs to rise up because I don't think that, that I think they're all too scared to do that. And, and the purpose of the sanctions is not also not to get the people of Russia to rise up, because um, at the moment, because of all this sort of frenzy and of hysteria in terms of pro-Putin nationalism, they're all all with him. But I think the purpose of sanctions, and this is very important, is is to cut off the flow of money to Russia so that Putin can't fund this war. And we've done a bunch of good things to do that. We we have sanctioned. The central bank reserves of Russia. Sixty percent of those central bank reserves are in currencies that are frozen by the U.S. and its allies. Uh, we've cut off a number of banks from SWIFT. About seventy percent of the banks from SWIFT. Well, um, we should cut off a hundred percent of the banks from SWIFT. It makes no sense because if you can't use one bank to make dollar transfers or other transfers, you can use an, uh, the, one of the unsanctioned banks. And then on the oligarch front, we've we've sanctioned. Um, about 32 oligarchs. And when I say we, the United States has sanctioned some, the EU, others, they're not all the same people. Um, there's 118 oligarchs and the oligarchs are the ones who hold Putin's offshore cash and they should be sanctioned, all 118 of them. 
Coming back to the question of what additional assistance the U.S. could provide, obviously one problem with, say, a no-fly zone is that the military would tell you to enforce it. The U.S. would have to be prepared to and and probably would uh, directly engage uh, Russian uh, military aircraft, and you'd have a situation where the U.S. was shooting uh, Russian planes down. Russia's a nuclear weapons state. Uh, address the, the fundamental question that, that we face here. What do you do when you have somebody, our president is called a war criminal, who also has nuclear weapons? How do you deal with that problem? Well, we have that problem today before we ever shoot down a Russian plane. So, so just imagine, so here we are, we are telling Vladimir Putin, the president of the United States is saying to Vladimir Putin, we're not going to get involved with you because you're a nuclear state and we don't want to shoot down a plane and engage with you nuclearly. So what's the message that Vladimir Putin gets? So the message is very simple. So what does he do next? But let's just say that, that he's had his fun with Ukraine. He then pulls up at the Estonian border. He, he, he points a bunch of weapons at Estonia, and then he points a nuclear warhead at, at Washington, Berlin, and London. And then he says to us, are you ready to have a nuclear war with me over this country? It's the same question. It's the exact same question. And then what do we respond? We say, no, we don't want a nuclear war with you. You can have Estonia. And by the way, take Lithuania, Poland, Latvia, and Romania as well. That, well, that, wait a minute. It's not, it's not the same question because those are NATO countries and we, we have an Article 5 commitment to NATO countries. Ukraine is not a member of NATO. So it's, it's really not the same thing, is it? Well, we, we have the Budapest Memorandum where, 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 where we, we said, well, you give up your territory, you, you give up your nuclear weapons and we'll um, protect your territorial integrity. I mean, these, these I, I, t- mark my words, if we ever get to this point in, in Estonia, there will be on every on Fox and CNN and MSNBC, every all sorts of pundits and analysts are going to come on and say, "Do we want to risk, you know, millions of people dying for for this country that most people can't locate on a map?" I mean, it's 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 the same thing. At some point, we, I mean, he is in a position right now where he's going to he's challenging every rule, um, every every tradition, every border um, in 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 what he's doing in Ukraine, and and we can face it now or we can face it later. And so I would argue that it's better to help the Ukrainians win this war than, than ending up uh, in a situation where, where we are, are, are basically uh, uh, folding to Putin's bluff because he's, he has the nuclear weapons either in the future or now, and, and he, he will uh, threaten us with nuclear weapons in the future or now. And, and the one thing he does respect, and, and I've seen this time and time again, is he, restrict, he respects strength. He understands that if he's in a nuclear confrontation with the United States, um, that 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 is something he doesn't want to do, and and but but what he what he what he takes advantage of is all of us bowing our heads down and saying we don't want to engage with you because we're because we don't want to engage with you. That 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 is that that is an invitation for him to do whatever we're not challenging him on. So I want to come back to the question of how we will win this war, uh, sh- short of a direct military conflict with Russia, which surely nobody wants. Uh, the, the strategy that the, the Biden administration uh, with its NATO allies has is to impose sanctions that are so devastating that they effectively shut down Russia's ability to make war and really uh, cripple uh, its, its economy, set its econ- economy back decades. You know a lot about the Russian economy. 
uh, having invested there successfully. I want to just ask you whether that uh, basic strategy is viable. And you, you talked about ways to, to, to make it bite more, extending uh, various aspects of these sanctions. How soon, if, if that was done, do you think Russia would really be at its knees and, and forced to, to pull back? Well, there, there's, we're, not, we're nowhere near there yet. There, there's a couple of things I didn't have time to mention, which are the elephants in the room. Um, the first one is that, um, yes, it's great that we've, we've done the central bank sanctions. Yes, it's great that we've done the oligarchs. But every day, um, without fail, uh, the West, and I particularly mean uh, uh, Germany and Italy and so on, are sending a billion dollars um, to Putin by buying Russian oil and gas. And um, that's a lot of money, a billion dollars a day. And so, by some estimates, that's what Russia is spending on their war effort. And so, and then that's what Europeans, European countries are paying them. And so it's kind of a wash, you know, money in, money out. <clears throat> and so if you look at it that way, um, we're not degrading their ability at all. We're, we're it, you know, from a business standpoint, there's, there's you know, uh, if, you, if you were to say Russia is a company, they have a, a bunch of assets on their balance sheet, which we've frozen but they have a bunch of income coming in on their income statement. You have a bunch of um, revenue coming in, all of this uh, oil, oil sales, and that we're not, we haven't really messed with yet. And um, that's a harder nut to crack. Uh, one, because Germany and Italy and all these countries are so dependent on Russian gas. And two, because the gas and oil prices are so high. And there's, there's two ways to deal with this. And one, one thing which, which would, have, which would be, have an outsized effect and be really crucial in this whole thing is if we could get the oil price down. And that is something that we could do because Saudi Arabia is the largest oil producer in the world. In theory, they're still an ally of the United States. We provide all sorts of military protection for Saudi Arabia. And if, if um, they were to cooperate and turn on their taps, they could pump out an additional one or two million barrels of oil a day. And if they were to do that, that would push the oil price down by 30%. And if the oil price went down by 30%, then Russian revenues would go down by 30%, whether the Germans cut off any gas or not. And if that were to happen, then we would be putting a serious dent into Russia's financial ability to wage this war. I, I should note that uh, within the last few days, Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had a lengthy phone conversation with one Vladimir Putin to talk about future continued cooperation. So I'm not holding my, my breath for Saudi assistance uh, on this score. You, you've made a, a point that I find fascinating uh, when we're talking about really squeezing the Russian economy, and that is that the, the oligarchs, the, the, the corrupt Russian economy we've been discussing, are enabled by a network of people in Europe and the United States primarily who do the banking, who do some of the legal transactions, who protect the flows of money, uh, who, who are really part of, of Putin's uh, Russian network. How would the United States and the West really go after that network of facilitators? Um, are there specific things that you'd recommend? Uh, are there laws already in the books that if enforced would, uh, would make a difference? Well, th th there's a really easy one, and this is one that I, I, was, uh, I was invited to testify about this issue in front of Congress a couple weeks ago. 
And because uh, I've been, uh, uh, you know, a great witness and victim of of these enablers working for the Russian government who who are you know, sitting in the United States and in Great Britain in various places. And the first thing we can do, and this is easy, this this takes no effort, is uh, if you have a, uh, let's say, a bunch of British enablers, br people that are known to be money launderers, mo known to be um, lawyers representing the Russian government attacking dissidents abroad, um, uh, you know, PR firms that are doing this this type of work, that 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 that's um that's something you could easily, the United States could say to to um, to those people when they want to come to the United States, you can no longer have a visa to come here. And similarly, the UK could do the same thing for U.S. enablers and the EU, et cetera. And and that's something which um, it doesn't take much effort. A visa is a privilege; it's not a right. Um, if these people aren't conducive to the public interest of the country, they could be banned from entry. And that's something that would would immediately, like within seconds, um, uh, scare the hell out of everybody in the legal profession and all these other professions who who rely on moving around to to move money and and uh, uh, you know, coordinate attacks on on journalists and whistleblowers, et cetera. And um, it's something when when I aired this idea, um, uh, the uh, co-chairman of the Helsinki Commission, a guy named Representative Stephen Cohen, he, he loved it and he jumped onto it and he wrote to the Secretary of State um, uh, proposing it and actually naming the first six names of British lawyers. And and uh, this is something that which I'm I'm talking to. Uh, British politicians about and European politicians next week about because I think it's something that that um, would have an immediate effect and that now of course there's much bigger things that one can be doing if if these lawyers are are taking money or other people taking money um, from uh, sanctioned individuals um, they should be uh, uh, punished for uh, violating sanctions and if they're taking money that's the, that are the proceeds of crime they should be prosecuted for taking money from the, that are the proceeds of crime. But the key is just enforcement and actually recognizing this as a problem. Let's uh, turn to your new book. Uh, and I'd ask you to tell our viewers the, the basic story that you've narrated in, in the book. You were a, a prominent uh, investor in, in, in Russia. Um, you uh, uh, got into significant uh, conflict with Putin and those around him. Uh, they turned on you and, and began attacking you. Your lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, died in, in prison under horrifying circumstances. Just talk our, our viewers through that story and, and what it taught you about how Putin's Russia really operates. So, well, so you've outlined the first part of the story, which is the beginning of, of my book, which is the um, the the murder, the Russian government's murder of Sergei Magnitsky, my lawyer, who um, uncovered a two hundred and thirty million dollar corruption scheme and was testified against the officials involved and was subsequently arrested, tortured for three hundred and fifty eight days and killed for doing that. And his his murder really um, turned my changed my life forever. Um, it was the most heartbreaking, awful thing that I'd ever experienced. And he was killed because he was my lawyer, and I felt a, a unbelievable uh, feeling of burden of guilt since then. And and I made a decision um, after he was killed to put aside my life as a businessman and to devote all of my time, resources, and energies going after the people um, who killed Sergei to make sure they face justice. And and my my book is is about two parts of the campaign to get justice. The the first part um, is something called the Magnitsky Act, named after Sergei Magnitsky, um, which freezes the assets and bans the visas 
of uh, the people who killed him and the people who do similar types of things. And the Magnitsky Act was passed in the United States in 2012, and, um, and then it's been passed now in 34 countries around the world. The second part of my campaign to get justice was to find out who got the money, the $230 million that Sergei had exposed uh, and testified against and um, was killed over. And, and we traced that money all over the world, and including and up to going to Vladimir Putin. And so what, what I describe in my book is, this, is the process of, of getting these laws passed in other countries and, um, and following the money and all the unbelievable things that Vladimir Putin uh, and his regime did to try to stop us. And it included um, a number of people being killed or attempting to kill them. Um, Boris Nemtsov was one of my allies in this whole uh, process. He was at almost every different lawmaking body in the world that has passed a Magnitsky Act. He testified in favor of a Magnitsky Act. And I believe that one of the main reasons that um, uh, he was assassinated, he, he was assassinated in February 2015, was his work on the Magnitsky Act. His protege, Vladimir Karamurza, um, was also testifying in different lawmaking bodies. They poisoned him in Moscow. Uh, uh, in uh, 2015 and again in 2017. And in fact, uh, just uh, 10 days ago, they, uh, he went back to Moscow and he's just, he's just been arrested. And he's now the first person who's been, or not, I, should say, I shouldn't say the first person, but the first major uh, political figure who's been charged with this new um, law saying that you can't mention the word war, where they sentence them to 15 years in jail. Um, and, uh, and then many other people, including myself, where, where um, Vladimir Putin um, uh, has uh, threatened me with all sorts of things uh, up to and including death. And they've, they've um, uh, issued eight Interpol arrest warrants. And at the Trump summit in Helsinki, Vladimir Putin even asked Trump uh, to hand me over. And, uh, and Trump said, for a brief period of time, said yes. And so it's a it's a crazy story, my book from uh, and uh, and what it, my book it's kind of the, the the main conclusion that most people come to when they read the book is that uh, and, and I guess it's not that that big a leap these days. It would have been three months ago, but that that, that Russia is effectively um, a criminal organization. That it's there there it's not a sovereign state in in the way we think of it. It's Vladimir Putin is the mafia boss, and he uses all the power of his sovereign state to steal more money and to shut up anybody who stands in their way. You've been very courageous in, in fighting this. Tell our, our viewers the remarkable story about how R Russia, in its pursuit of you, sent somebody to meet uh, Madame Vasilnitskaya, as I remember her name, uh, to yeah. meet in New York with uh, some of Donald Trump's closest associates. I think Jared Kushner was at that, at that meeting before the election trying to pressure the Trump campaign to em embrace uh, 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 resistance to your Magnitsky Act, repeal of it. T t tell folks about, about that, uh, that, that meeting and what it shows us about, about, uh, about Putin. Well, so after the Magnitsky Act was passed in 2012, Vladimir Putin like, went out of his mind. He, he, went, he went crazy. He banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. He wrote down in his, his first major foreign policy paper after being reelected that he wanted to repeal the Magnitsky Act. And, um, and he did everything possible. Um, and he was looking for an opening 
uh, and he wasn't he hadn't been successful after 2012, but he saw that Donald Trump was gonna be, was the Republican nominee. And so he sent an agent, um, one of his agents, who was a Russian uh, lawyer, a, a woman named Natalia Veselnitskaya, to Trump Tower, June 9th, 2016, to meet with Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort. And the, um, the subject of the meeting was um, to repeal the Magnitsky Act. And um, uh, in theory, um, she was offering dirt on, on Hillary Clinton. And, uh, and this was, it was quite remarkable when this information came out because this was the first sort of documented meeting between um, in, insider Trump campaign officials and, and people you know, agents of the Russian government. And it's still unclear um, exactly what happened in that meeting. Nobody, we all know what was asked for. We don't know exactly what was offered. Um, but what it did show was two things. One, one, how desperate Putin was to get rid of the Magnitsky Act. Um, and, and the second thing it showed was, was um, uh, uh, how, how crafty he was about um, approaching the Trump campaign, which which I thought was both um, ominous and interesting. In the in the time that we have uh, left, uh, Mr. Brett, I want to return to the war in Ukraine, which is the really the showdown for for Putin and Putin's Russia, uh, and the outcome will will obviously have lasting uh, impact on, on the world. And I want to ask you what I think of as the as the Dave Petraeus question. Famously, on his way into Iraq, uh, General Petraeus turned to a journalist from the Washington Post, Rick Atkinson, who's tra- traveling with him, and, and said, "Tell me how this ends." And I'm curious, not simply the war in Ukraine, but the but the larger story of of Putin's Russia, this corrupt system, uh, ridden with inefficiency and, and, and criminal activity. Tell me how this ends. Where, where, does, where does it go? Do you see uh, Putin's falling from power? Do you see uh, Russia stabilizing after, after that? Some people think it'll be even more unstable and dangerous after Putin. What, what, what do you think? How, how does this story end? Well, um, uh, so I, I'm a sort of scenario analyzer. I, I don't have a one ending scenario. I, 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 there's three scenarios that I see in how this could end. There's the good scenario, which is I would put as a low probability scenario, probably 15%. And that is that Ukraine defeats Russia militarily, that we supply enough equipment, uh, military equipment, that they're fighting for their homeland, they're fighting better than the Russians, the Russians are, are inefficient, corrupt, and demoralized, and that they win, and they decisively win, and they drive Russia out of Ukraine. As I said, it's a low probability scenario. But if that were to happen, um, it's my opinion that uh, the Russian people would no longer allow Vladimir Putin to be in charge. How he gets changed from that um, is anyone's guess. It could either be a palace coup, in which case you end up with some uh, other KGB general doing the same thing, or it can be a, 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 a massive uprising, a violent uprising. And, and in which case, um, I can imagine a scenario where someone like Alexei Navalny would become the next president of Russia. And then we probably have a very good uh, scenario. But as I say, that, that, that is low probability, 15%. Um, the more likely uh, scenario, and I put this at 70%, is that this thing carries on and carries on and carries on. That Putin um, 
can't decisively beat Ukraine and Ukraine can't decisively be beat Putin. Um, and neither side has any interest in giving up. The Ukrainians are not going to give up their territory. And Putin can't back down and look weak from a, a, a conflict that he started. Uh, in that case, this just goes on and on and on. And I should point out that, you know, we say that this war started on February 24th, but in reality, this war started in 2014. That That's when Russia took Crimea illegally. And that's when Russia sent in um, various people. Um, they, they called them um, uh, Russian-backed separatists. But but I, I think that that, that that term has really been very unhelpful in uh, defining how this whole thing has been playing out because they're effectively Russians or Russian proxies for all intents and purposes and have been fighting a Russian war for the last eight years. So this thing, in, in my opinion, has been going on for eight years. And, and there's no reason why it wouldn't go on for another eight years and, and with our all sorts of unbelievable, heartbreaking tragedies along the way. And that and I, 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 I dread to say this, but I think that that's a more likely scenario with a 70 percent probability. And then there's the really terrible bad case scenario which is one I alluded to before when we were talking about the no-fly zone, which is the, um, and this is another, I put 15% on this, this is the rolling up tanks on the Estonian or Lithuanian border and then having this big showdown with us and, and saying, are you ready to go to war with us over this country that most Americans couldn't locate on a map? And he's hoping that we will fold, that we'll say, you know, actually, we don't want to go to war with you. That's what he's hoping. And, and everybody... It's interesting when I, I talk to people, everyone says, "Well, you know, uh, that that's impossible because uh, Article Five of of NATO." But what does that mean? Article Five of NATO is just a is is just a sort of concept. It's it's not it, it, you know no one's legally required to do anything. We 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 break treaties all the time if it's in our national interest to do so. And Putin's hope is that we that we'll all reflect on that and say, you know what, you can just go, we you can have everything uh, past 1945, all those things that you that that you know uh, Poland. Czech Republic, et cetera, they can all be yours. That, that's his, that's the nightmare scenario. Um, so that's, and, a, I think we need to, to end it there. Uh, it's, a, it's a grim forecast from somebody who knows Putin's Russia uh, extremely well, so uh, to be taken seriously. Bill Bratter, thank you so much for joining us uh, on Washington Post Live. Talk about your book and talk about the issues we're all following. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.